I think one of the best things about the content creators that we sort of have seen on LinkedIn, Austin Belsack, as an example, like he posts very, very actionable content. And that's very much what we sort of like to strive for as well when we sort of talk about job search, making it extremely tangible so that someone who is reading it can take action that very second. So for you, if there's content that you really like and enjoyed with and enjoyed and you're like, listen, I'm going to try it. If it takes you less than five minutes, do it. Try it. Best case scenario is that you get a job out of it. The worst case scenario, you use five minutes. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guests today are two founders who have come together with one goal in mind to turn underdogs into winners by helping those who come from non-traditional backgrounds and non-target schools land their dream careers. They both know what it's like and vividly remember the struggles they faced striving to land their dream jobs at top tech companies and know all too well what it feels like to apply for hundreds of jobs only to receive those dreaded we regret to inform you rejection emails. Our first guest, since cracking the code and figuring out what it takes, has worked at companies such as Snap, Cisco, and Google. He's worked on many initiatives, providing advice and words of wisdom on LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, where his content has seen over 30 million monthly impressions. He's spoken in nine countries and over 250 universities, as well as speaking at engagements such as Talks at Google and the LinkedIn Influencer Summit. Our second guest is a former senior strategy and operations manager at Google and product strategy lead at Lucid. He's one of LinkedIn's top voices for tech in 2020 and has been featured on Forbes, Newsweek and Business Insider, just to name a few. Together, they've helped thousands of people land roles at FANG companies at Cisco, Microsoft, Deloitte, EY, Disney, KPMG, and the list goes on and on and on, my friends. So please help me welcoming our guests today, the co-founders of One Salting and The 20 and newly minted Forbes 30 Under 30, Jonathan Javier and Jerry Lee. Jonathan, Jerry, thank you guys so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today, man. I appreciate both of you gentlemen joining me. Our parade, thank you so much for having us here. I could not be more excited to share some of the experiences that we've had. And also that we had someone mutually that we both know who introduced us. So yeah. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, definitely, man. Shout out to, uh, to Pooja. Pooja definitely was one of the first guests that I reached out to. Actually, I reached out to Pooja before I even had a podcast. So she's in the first cohort of people that I reached out to. Uh, so Pooja, thank you so much for making that introduction for us. So look, before we get into all the wonderful advice and wisdom you guys share across all your content platforms, 
let's get to learn a little bit more about you guys. So let's start with Jerry. Jerry, talk to us about where you grew up and what it was like there. And then we'll move on to, to Jonathan. Yeah, first for everyone tuning in and anyone who will be tuning in, first, thank you so much for sharing us time, your attention with us. We're super excited to be here. A little bit about my story. So I come from a first generation low income background where I think most people might look at that and go, whoa, that's kind of weird. Why would you start off with leading that? For me, I feel like I wear that very proudly because I feel like throughout my entire career, it very much has sort of been an uphill battle for me to figure out what, what do I want to do with my career? How do I break into my dream companies? And so on and so forth. But I felt like that background taught me the importance of pushing hard, taught me the importance of working hard, and how that translates into doing well for your career, your side gigs and everything else in between. So today, so I started off my career at Google, was the first intern at Google from my alma mater, later was hired as a youngest analyst and got promoted multiple times before I left to lead a product strategy team. And now I'm here at Wall Consulting with Jonathan. And fun fact, we actually just made our first full-time marketing hire today, which is really, really exciting. Congratulations, man. That's a, that's a huge step, man. I definitely love hearing, hearing that, that background because, you know, growing up in that same type of environment myself, being, uh, you know, immigrant family, first generation immigrant from, you know, low income family, low income neighborhood and having to go through all those struggles, man. It's not, not easy. Jonathan, man, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up and what it was like there? Of course. Well, first off, thanks so much for having us. Really appreciate it. And, uh, Hope everyone's having an amazing Tuesday. Uh, yeah, I'm Jonathan Javier. I'm the co-founder of One Sulting. Our mission turned underdogs into winners, as Jerry has said. So helping those who come from non-traditional backgrounds and non-target schools to help them get into their dream careers. But yeah, I mean, my career started uh, when I was first uh, graduating from college. And I still remember like find all the different companies and thinking that I could get in simply by applying wasn't really the case, especially coming from the background that I, that I came from. But I realized that by utilizing LinkedIn, specifically with networking, building rapport and, and getting to know people, you're able to establish these connections, which lead to job opportunities. So that's how I was able to land my job at Snap, Google and Cisco by just creating those relationships through LinkedIn and by utilizing social media to get there. But yeah, it's been an amazing journey ever since Jerry and I have been working together for the past year and a half to build one soul thing to help more people land jobs. And honestly, we've done a ton, like we've gone to 2 million following on social media, I think like 60 million impressions per month now on all our social media channels. And it's going to continue growing for the near future as long as you all are coming with us on the journey. So excited to be here and excited to speak a little more about all the different tips that we can give or, or insights. So. I, that, yeah, you guys have had such a massive impact. It's been amazing to see and just quite the meteoric rise over the last couple of years that that I've been following you guys on, on LinkedIn. Uh, but like, how do you guys know each other? Did you guys grow up together? Did you guys go to high school together? Did you go, like, you know, what's, what's the backstory there? Yeah. So Jerry and I know each other. Yeah. I mean, from LinkedIn. So funny story is the same strategies that we teach on our social media channels, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, do the same thing to Jerry, basically. And Jerry does the same thing to a lot of different individuals. How do you build those relationships with individuals to ultimately lead to opportunities? So I actually reached out to Jerry in, I think it was 2018, because I was working at Snap and he was at Google. And I kind of wanted to learn more about how Google worked. And yeah, I mean, basically helped me get into corporate. And then a few months down the road, we collaborated on a workshop at UC Berkeley and we've been collaborating and working together ever since. So it's been an amazing journey for myself and Jerry. And yeah, I mean, 
not only that, Jerry and I also live in the same house. So I'm literally on the second floor and Jerry's on the third floor. So if you can hear me in Jerry's background, that's me. So <laughs> that's a little bit about it. <laughs> that's cool, man. I didn't, I didn't know you guys that live together. So let's learn a little bit more about One Salting, kind of like the mission and, and the vision. I think talk to us, I, 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 I guess, first about the genesis of the company and how did this idea start? How did this idea come about? Like, what were you seeing in the world that was just like, ah, oh, you just, just could, couldn't take anymore. You ha- had to do something about it. Like, what was that moment? Yeah, I think that when we were, when we were on our job search, I, I, we like, we didn't have any family members that worked in these big corporate companies, as we like to say. So we saw that there was a huge need, especially with individuals trying to break into these companies and coming from non-traditional backgrounds, right? So when we joined forces in 2020, we realized that there was a huge gap. And especially during COVID, when there was a lot of layoffs and forelogs, we thought that we could play a big part, especially with helping people get jobs. So what we first started doing was we were doing a ton of different workshops together, but also we were doing a lot of initiatives where we were giving free resources to people and we were able to impact tens of thousands of lives. Like we had like 20, like tens of thousands of people attending our lives on LinkedIn. And it kind of spearheaded and spearheaded the growth of one Sulting. But all of one Sulting literally just came from an idea, like honestly. And if anybody's trying to start their own business, their own companies, it all stems from you having an idea and you starting it, but also having someone who can hold you accountable for it, right? So in 2019, one Sulting started, it was just me at first doing a bunch of workshops around the Bay Area and SoCal. And yeah, I mean, it was going great, but it was just an idea. But honestly, when Jerry and I joined forces and when Jerry joined the team, that's when it skyrocketed and that's what we're at today because we're able to collaborate with each other and make a difference in the world. So that's a little bit about the genesis of our company. Yeah. And one thing I'd add there is that I think the, the, the coolest thing I think behind all of this is that both John and I very much share a very similar passion for wanting to help others, especially in the domain of, of the careers, career search. And I think it's very rare that you find someone who shares a very similar passion as you. It's very rare to find someone who loves a company if as much, if not more than you, but more importantly, someone who just sort of builds on top of you rather than sort of being conflicting or with egos or anything like that. And I think that's sort of the reason why John and I have been able to work together so well for so long. Rather, it's only been about two years now, but I do attribute a lot of the success to sort of our working relationship with each other, our ability to communicate with one another, our ability to share feedback with one another. And yeah, for sure. Sometimes things aren't always roses and and you know sparkles everywhere but i do feel like one of the best things is sort of working with such a good friend almost one of my john is one of my best friends and despite what most people may think about working with someone so close to you i think honestly it sort of helps and i mean definitely especially if you guys are you know coming together for such a, a big mission it, it you know with little skirmishes whatever you put that aside because you're doing it in the service something larger so speaking of speaking of the mission let's talk about you know uh, underdog so so jonathan talk to us kind of about you know what what is the definition of an underdog who who are the underdogs and then maybe after that jerry why is it that companies tend to overlook people just because of you know their their quote-unquote pedigree yeah, I think underdogs is honestly, I mean, everybody, everybody has an underdog story. And the reason why I say this is because everyone's been through rejections throughout their life, specifically with jobs, right? Or they've been through specific struggles throughout their lives, whether it's coming from a first-gen background, trying to make it and try to make their parents happy or anything in general. I think the underdog mentality is for those who have setbacks or challenges throughout their life, but they look at the rejections as redirections as long as they react in the right way. 
So if you're able to do that, especially with trying to get into your career or just trying to do anything in general, that's what's going to, that's the principle that can be set for you to make a difference in the world. Like, for example, like that rejection is redirection is something that's holds dear to me and Jerry too as well. Like one thing was like when we got rejected from Forbes last year, we were able to utilize that as motivation to keep on going for this year when we grew to our numbers today. And then we were able to be on the list, for example. So utilize it as motivation, as an underdog to get into whatever you want to get into. And you can honestly do it if you just put the mindset towards it. Yeah, that reminds me of this uh, Jocko Willink when he talks about good, right? Like he's like, you know, whatever, just good. Just unexpected problems, good. You have an opportunity to find a solution. Didn't get the job you wanted, good. Got an opportunity to, to, you know, get more experience, build a better resume. It's like a little subtle mindset shift. Uh, I love that. Thank you. And Jerry, so so what is it? What is about these companies overlooking people just because of like their, their pedigree? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a really interesting question. And I think it just goes back to how if you were running a company, what would you do? Right. For example, I think more traditional industries like consulting, investment banking, private equity, I think those are prime examples. And even tech companies and sort of Fortune 500 companies, let's say you have a team of five recruiters and you need to hire 100 people in the next three months. Where would you go? Would you go to the schools and places where you've historically had the most amount of success, success or would you try out and venture out and, and potentially look at other areas where you might potentially find better talent, if not the same level of quality, but just in different areas. Historically, what we've seen, and sort of through the research we've done, has been that leaders typically will say, all right, let's hire the next generation of investment bankers or analysts or software engineers from these respective areas. They've worked worked well for us in the past. Now, I think that makes a lot of sense. From a business perspective, why would you venture out into an area when you already have such high ambitions already? You'd rather hire to t- top 10% from five schools rather than t- hiring the top 1% from 50 schools. Why? Because it's much harder operationally. And so that's the work that we do, is how do we make that process easier for not only the job seekers to be just as competitive and stand out in the recruiting processes from everyone else, but also on the other end, for those people who do have very traditional backgrounds, what do sort of they have? What is sort of the what are some of the drivers that allow them to be more successful in the recruiting process than someone who's not? Is it the network? Is it the school that you went to? Is it the companies that you have on your resume? Or is it something else? And that something else is really what we like to dig into. And a lot of the work that we're working on behind the scenes is very much designed to tackle that very question. And so when people sign up to work with you guys, whether it's through, through the courses or, or, or through the company and, and your mentors, when they sign up to, to work with you guys, what's like one of the first few things that, that you start to do with people? What are the first, I guess, myths you start to debunk or the mindset, shift, mindset shifts you, you help people go through or, or anything like that? Yeah, I think, the, I think the, the first and most important thing, at least and something that John and I talk about all the time is... Recruiting is a very emotional process, right? It is very much of a rejection first game where you have to go through a hundred no's for you to get that one yes, right? And that's something that John and I love to say all the time. You just need that one yes. And I remember when I created this LinkedIn post, I think for most people, it sort of is very self-explanatory, right? You don't need six full-time jobs. You just need one. But 
oftentimes I think people focus too much on the negatives. People focus too much on the rejections, which is why Jonathan says all the time, hey, rejections redirection, right? And I'm sure that John's going to talk a lot of bit about that. But for, like really for me, the, the whole thing about the job search, very much baked into the, it's an emotional process. Know that it's an emotional process. So the more that you could detach the emotions and make it a very logical process, the easier it'll be. Jonathan, what are like the 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 first two steps to to getting from that rejection to redirection path? I think it's all about mindset. Honestly, I agree. it's it's like when you look at anything in life. At first, of course, it's natural to be like, "Dang, like I, I wasn't able to get this accomplishment," which is like totally okay, right? But at the end of the day, like if you're able to look at those and utilize it in motivation to be like, dang, even though I didn't get it now, it's just a temporary pause to get it eventually. So what I'd recommend to everybody, especially if you get rejections or trying to achieve something is to create a vision board, right? Create a vision board and draw your future. What I like to do is draw my goals that I have specifically for the year in the beginning of the year. I actually just did a vision board workshop internally for our team. But it's very important because you're able to draw sort of where you want to be in the next year. And I think that visual aspect, especially with you changing those rejections to redirections, it's going to be very important to actually put into not only just a dream, but something into a reality. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Now let's get into some uh, some some topics here on LinkedIn. I'm pretty sure I'm violating LinkedIn's terms of service because I'm not supposed to talk about LinkedIn on LinkedIn live stream, but we're gonna do it anyways. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how it goes. They're not gonna terminate it. It's okay. So I think the audience is really gonna enjoy this. So when 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 you go to a LinkedIn profile, like what's the immediate thing you go to? Number one, first thing. Uh, let's start with uh, Jerry and then go to John. I think the first thing is always going to be your photo, your cover photo, and your headline. Now that being said. I don't mean that, all right, well, are you wearing a suit in your photo or anything like that? I think the biggest thing there for a cover photo and a profile photo is to just to make sure you're an actual human being. I think LinkedIn shared studies where if you have a profile photo, you're 70% more likely to get a response or get clicks on your profile, something along those crazy metrics. But I 100% believe it, that if the first six impression, the first six seconds of your first impression you want to show people that, yes, I am human and that this is not a bot. The second thing is a headline because that's the first thing that someone's going to read. Once someone glances over an image, the first thing that they'll see is what can I read? And you want to make it so clear as to where you are today and where you want to go in the future. So for example, if you're currently in marketing and you eventually want to move to product management, one of the headlines that you could have is marketing manager at consulting bar aspiring product manager. I, th- I don't think it's bad to share your goals and ambitions with your team where you're saying, hey, listen, marketing is great, but my passions feel like I want to explore product management more. To have aspiring product manager headline tells people immediately, cool, this person wants to be in product management. So I think being very clear about who you are and what you want to get out of LinkedIn is extremely important. Jonathan, when it comes to the, the headlines, what is a common mistake you see people make repeatedly when it comes to their headlines? I think I think what's is a very very controversial, but I think that the green open to work circle or just saying seeking new opportunities in your headline doesn't help that much. The reason being is because like if you're going to reach out to someone on LinkedIn, they're going to assume that you're going to reach out to them for a job, right? So what we'd recommend is actually putting the open to work as recruiters only. 
So recruiters will be able to see you when they search for you or try to find you. I think another mistake too as well is they just put their specific position that they're in. You can put that of course, but you want to put details into it. And why I say this is because like, think about this. If anybody was to search whatever job you're going for, would you show up? Yes or no. That's why you have to make sure that your LinkedIn is very SEO optimized and make sure that you have a lot of the keywords in there. So when recruiters search you, you'll be able to be found. So I think that's what's going to be very important. And then last but not least, putting a little bit about your background. So for example, you can just say first gen in there so you can connect with other first gens. Or if you're an advocate for something, you can add that to as well. I think a mission part of that would be great. And so let's talk about some do's and don'ts with, with LinkedIn content and posting content. There seems to be this like thing that I keep seeing people comment over and over. This shouldn't be on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a professional site. What are you talking about this? Blah, blah, blah. But what are your thoughts on that? Let's start with that with, with Jonathan, just because I, I, I saw that you've gotten eight hours of sleep last night. So that's good. Uh, it, was Jerry, it was Jerry. Oh, it was Jerry that posted I, I got, that, yeah. I got four hours. Four um, hours. <laughs> but I can talk, I take a step of that. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, please. Posting on, link, posting on LinkedIn, uh, I think that the, the mistake that people make is not posting. <laughs> it's, 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 the reason why is because like people get scared that if they post on LinkedIn, they're going to get feedback, which they don't enjoy or different opinions. When reality, of course you will. There'll be at least one person. Uh, that says it. But at the end of the day, do you focus on one person who says it or you focus on 99 other people who don't? Why I say this is because all the time, my link, some of my LinkedIn friends always tell me, Ugh. well, I see that on their story sometimes and they're like, oh, someone bad commented on my post. It's totally fine. It's okay. Right? At the end of the day, you got people that are just like that, but are they going to stop you from keeping creating content? Probably not. Right. So what, what I recommend is if anything's on your mind, well, if anything's towards that niche that you're interested in, whether it's for me, for example, job search, or for Jerry, an example, tech motivation and job search too as well, post content with that niche and find other people who are posting as well. And you'll find that there's a community of individuals who love creating content, which will allow more networking opportunities and more ideation. So that's what I'd recommend for your LinkedIn content creation. Jerry, what, are, what about you? What are some do's and don'ts that you can share? Yeah, I think the, the the do, I think this also applies to TikTok, Instagram, and sort of all the other sort of forms of social media is just authenticity. I think uh, it's extremely easy for the, the general user to know, is this person being genuine? Is this person truly meaning what they're saying? And I think part of being able to do that is being consistent with your messaging, being consistent with what you post, what you talk about, and why you post it. And I think for us, I think one of the things that I really admire about John is his ability to stay 100% consistent about his messaging, fighting for the underdog, talking about and sharing unconventional jobs or strategies. I think if you were to look at John's content three years ago, it's not going to seem much different than it is today. Because I think that consistency, the mission, the drive, the persistence, you very much know does not come from John just you know, pulling words out of the air. It very much comes from his passion for him to for him to for him to do things and so i think that's one of the biggest things just authenticity because i think once the more authentic you are the quicker you'll sort of realize and see that people are willing to sort of sort of understand sort of the work that you're saying and the work that you're doing authenticity 100 is the best to do and also being inauthentic unauthentic is what not to do so when we think about like just just posting content, maybe this this lines up with authenticity. Sometimes it might just be scared to post content. Like, who am I to post 
on this topic you know i don't have a phd in this thing what, what if i say something and you know it, it's wrong and people think i'm an idiot or something like that like what if we just don't feel like we're an expert enough to to post content you know that's that's really funny because i feel like I, I, I think that very much is one of the biggest barriers for people to post content. And what's really funny is I feel like if there's something that you want to share about your experiences, you very much could think of your younger self a year ago, two years ago as the audience. Because I can almost guarantee you that your learning that you feel like is super basic or you feel like it's something that everyone should know. I guarantee you people don't know that. And for me, I remember I used to get a lot of flack for, for posting things about resumes and job search and people were messaging me like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, how does, how does, like, how can anyone look, take this guy seriously? That is the most basic thing I could have, I could have read today. But the thing is, is that like my, my content is not designed for you. It is designed for people who were in my shoes when I was a freshman in college. It is designed for people who are still on the job search today without any guidance and really knowing what is good versus bad information. Right. And so I think for me, like that's really one of the things I, I really try to push hard for. There's an interesting point about con consumption of content. Like what are you guys thoughts around that? Right. There's, there's the creating content, but then there's the con consumption of content how do you how do you ensure that you're consuming good stuff i guess we'll start with, with jonathan yeah i think consumption of content is super important i think that how you can do this is be sure that your feed is with people that of course aren't toxic but are also giving you motivation or tangible tips for you whatever niche you're in how you can find this is very simple all you do is search whatever hashtag you're interested in or like niche and then just going to post and seeing who are these individuals creating content that's relevant to you. And then sort of following those individuals or following the hashtag even to get those get that content on your feed. Also too as well, people have to realize that the content that you like on LinkedIn, it's basically how the algorithm works. It's going to tailor towards whatever you are interested in looking at, right? So if you're liking a bunch of stuff on data science, you're going to show up a lot of data science. If you have one that's posting, I don't know, memes, you're going to have a bunch of memes on your LinkedIn, right? So be sure to like content that you thoroughly enjoy and that you wouldn't mind seeing on your profile or on your feed every single day. So, so question here for Gary, because there's a lot of good content out there as well, right? Like, you know, once you have the good content filtered down, you got your feed full of stuff that you actually do want to see, then it becomes, oh my God, there's so much good stuff and so many good tips. Like, how the fuck do I apply this to my life? Like, what am I supposed to do? Do you have like a, the tips or a framework on, on how you go about doing that, Jerry? In terms of finding good content? In terms of like making use of all the wonderful tips that people are sharing, uh, you know, because sometimes you, just, you get so many tips, you might just get paralyzed. Like, oh my God, what do I do? Yeah, I think the, the general thesis here is, is just, just try it, right? If John shares something that you're like really excited about and that really resonates with you, try it. Again, it, we're not guaranteeing that any of these things will work for you. But what we will guarantee is if you give you a list of 16 different strategies, one of them will. As long as you're persistent, as long as you focus on the positives, as long as you're consistent. Now, I think one of the best things about the content creators that we sort of have seen on LinkedIn, Austin Belsack, as an example, like he posts very, very actionable content. And that's very much what we sort of like to strive for as well when we sort of talk about job search making it extremely tangible so that someone who is reading it can take action that very second. So for you, if this content that you really like and enjoy it with and enjoyed, and you're like, listen, I'm going to try it. If it takes you less than five minutes, do it, try it. 
best case scenarios that you get a job out of it. The worst case scenarios, you use five minutes. That's, that's an excellent point. Just be brave enough to actually experiment. That's that's one piece of it. Act on the the advice that's that's kind of being shared and and, and the good tips. So we. You touched a little bit about networking earlier. I'm wondering if, if you could share some cheat codes with us for, for you know, networking. Like what, what are, I guess some do's and don'ts for people messaging other people on LinkedIn. Like I get hit up a lot from people I don't know. And literally the first message they're reaching out is, can you give me a job? Or, you know, they get, send me like a, a long essay about their life and they ask me this really critical, like, decision should i go to school here or not it is just like whoa like that's 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 huge is you know how are we supposed to go about this i guess some some guidelines for for networking and, and messaging people on linkedin yeah what i would say is anybody networking on linkedin if you're reaching out to someone ask yourself if you got that message would you respond i think that's literally one of the most important concepts because a lot of people would just say hey i pre give me a job right in fact, I mean, if you're hiring, then sure, and apply experiences. But if you're a recruiter, hiring manager, and you got reached out and someone said, can you get me a job? Can you guide me? It's like you're telling them to do something for you when instead it should be the other way around. What can I do for you? Can I be that qualified candidate for you to hire? Can I help you with hiring? I don't know, right? So I think the secret to networking is just being genuine, but not just being transactional. Right. Especially on LinkedIn, where you see a lot of people just asking for referrals all the time without building rapport. I think it's very important to have that human side and recognize that the person you're reaching out to is actually a human being before being a professional. So that's what I would say is sort of the, the, the life hack of LinkedIn. It's just it being not very transactional, non-transactional, and uh, just, yeah, these are actual people that you're, you're speaking to. So I'm wondering, Jerry, if you could share some tips about what we can do to make sure that when we reach out to a recruiter, that this is somebody that's actually going to be able to, to help me, and I'm just not like burning an in-mail credit. If you ask recruiters one of, in what their biggest pet peeves are, one of the biggest pet peeves is that candidates will reach out to them for roles that they're not hiring for. So for example, if you're trying to be a software engineer, and you reach out to a, a, a GNA recruiter, they don't recruit for that. You need to reach out to technical recruiters. And even when they are technical recruiters, you need to make sure they specifically hire software engineers, not you know uh, any other type of any other type of roles. Support engineers, data engineers, there's very nuanced type of roles that people hire for. And you just want to make sure you're reaching out to the right people. And the second thing is that even if you are reaching out to a recruiter, make sure they're actually hiring for roles. The role that you can you're qualified for just doing that simple layer of due diligence will set you apart by far and it sounds so backwards and it sounds so well jerry everyone's doing this now right they're not i can tell you right now i have about ten thousand two hundred connection requests right now i want you to guess what percentage of them actually sends personalized invites where they attach a message Wait, zero five percent something like that <laughs> some small yeah like one to five percent yeah generally yeah. and even of those people who write those messages how many of them will actually write very thoughtful messages mm-hmm. half even less so the fact that you can if you can do due diligence and just keep the basics simple right there is no magic hey make sure you type in this word and you're guaranteed to get a reply there's no magic formula like that be straightforward be simple reach out to as many people as you possibly can and that's how you do it and when it comes to, you know, actually interviewing, let's skip a couple of, of, of 
levels here. Let's say you applied for a job, you're in the in the interview, and you're showing up to an interview that you don't have much experience, right? I guess what would your and, and let's say it's an inter, entry level job. So I just want to get your hot take on entry level jobs requiring experience. What are your thoughts around that? How can we break that need experience to get experience cycle? Let's start with Jerry and then John, Jonathan. Yeah, I think the the biggest the biggest thing here is for you if you can't get experience, what we talk about is create your own experience. Now, when we say create your own experience, that simply means identify what skills you need for you to apply for the role that you want to go for. If you don't know what skills you need, go through the job description and say, and read, ask yourself, have I, do I have a bullet point on my resume that addresses this sentence, this sentence, this sentence, and this sentence? If the answer is no, write that down on a piece of paper. And those are the projects you should start working on. Now, if the question is what project should I be working on? Three areas. Think about a class project. Have you done anything with your university or anything, anything like that? Have you, have you looked into volunteer opportunities? whether it's with a nonprofit, whether it's with a local organization, or maybe even your favorite small business like consulting. And you're like, I really wanted to develop my marketing skills. I'm happy to volunteer my time. Or the third thing is simply just starting your own. So for example, if you wanted to get into product development, start a t-shirt company, learn how to sell, learn how to adapt your product, learn feedback, right? Like start something super simple and make sure you design your activities in a way that allow you for you to aim for those bullet points. And that's how you do it. Start simple, do something, be action first, instead of sort of just taking the time to think about it multiple, multiple times. Love that. Very, very actionable advice. Uh, thank you so much. Jonathan, what, what are your takes, uh, hot takes, some hot takes on, on this entry-level jobs requiring like three years of experience type of thing? I would say one thing that I think is very important is if you got the interview for the job, I mean, like, why would they interview you if you're not good enough already? Why I say this is because we were just interviewing someone for our marketing manager role. Like we wouldn't have interviewed you, interviewed the person if they weren't good on paper already. Right. So I think what it has to happen is when people get interviews, they think that they're not good enough. When in fact, like I said before, you wouldn't have gotten an interview if you weren't qualified enough. So always remember that in those interviews, you just crush it and just showcase exactly what's on the resume, but also showcase the kind of personality or what you would bring to the table, right? Another thing as well is always remember that it's not just you interviewing for the company, it's also you interviewing the company as well. So you want to make sure that it's a good fit for both of you, right? So uh, that's what I would say. I think Jerry hit all of the different points. So let's say, you know, let's say we are interviewing a company and let's say the interview period goes a little bit long in the sense that, okay, we start working at the company, we got the offer, we're, we're working at the company, and maybe we're there for like six months before we start looking for another job and, and land another job. Like, do, should we, I guess the, the question what I'm hinting at is, should we worry about looking like a job hopper in 2022? What are your thoughts on that? No, I don't think so. I could take this one because I job hop. <laughs> People, I was like, yo, why do you job hop every year and a half? The reason being is this, if a company paid you 33% of more than you're making right now, would you leave? Probably, right? You know what I mean? Uh, like when I went from Snap to Google, literally I made times two the amount that I was making on Snap to Google, even, even more, right? So I think what's very important is right now, like it's okay to job hop if the opportunity that's there is something that you're really interested in. And also just to kind of test the waters, you're young enough, right? As long as you don't job hop like five times in every three months, and that's kind of concerning, 
right? So what I say all the time is it's okay to job hop as long as your values are aligned with your job hopping and the company that you're working on is something that you're really interested in. Gary, what about you? Yeah, I, very much similar lines. Like I think as long as you have a story, I think that's that's all that really matters, mm-hmm. right? So for example, like people assume that job hopping is bad because it doesn't show commitment. But what if someone had a really toxic manager? What if they just weren't a culture fit? What if the role that we, they were being sold was completely different than what was advertised? So I think as long as you have a clear cut story as to, yeah, you know, listen, like I looked into my next role and it just didn't seem to be aligned with the role that I had initially thought it was. I don't think recruiters are going to look at that and go, all right, well, this person's a no-go. I think the problem comes when you just say, listen, I just got bored and that's it. Then it's, then people go, all right, all right, what's going on here, right? So that's just the biggest thing that we we, we think about often is just make sure you have a clear-cut story that it makes sense and that you're doing right by you, but also that you sort of keep in mind of what the what the companies are sort of thinking about too. If you have those key principles in mind, you're good. To, you're going to be good to go. And, you know, before we get to that phase, getting job offers and, and, and all that stuff, we can't job hop unless we get job offers. How about those negotiations? Like that, that's a critical piece, I think, of... of the job process like do you feel that people tend to be afraid to negotiate and where do you think that fear stems from yeah i can talk about this so for me personally when i first thought about the idea of negotiating i always thought to myself but i'm going to lose my job offer right if i negotiate today like what if i lose my job then i then i'm then i'm then i'll be making you know, I could have been making $60,000, but now I'm going to be making zero because I don't have a job anymore. But I think what, what people fail to realize is how hard it is to get someone to the offer stage. And it's funny because looking out from looking from the outside into Google, you might think, oh my gosh, they must be giving out offers left and right for every role on their team. Like they must get thousands of applications. Yeah, that's true. But it's very rare that someone will go through all the steps of the process, make sure to get through a hiring committee, every sort of step of the process, and get to the offer stage. That's what's really hard. And I wish everyone got a chance to experience what that's like, because if they knew how hard it was, you would know that generally you have the power, you as a job seeker have the power of negotiation, not the recruiters. Because imagine this, imagine if a recruiter had to hire five people and they hired zero people for six months. How's their performance review going to look? Probably not so well. So recruiters are literally incentivized to make sure that you sign the offer. Yes, they are. They're trying to do what's right by the company. But most importantly, they are trying to do what's right for them in their role and their roles to get you hired. We had a question coming in here from Kevin on LinkedIn. I think this is a great question. I think, you know, kind of talking about the interview process and then this fits in nicely here. Kevin wants to know, how do you ask better questions during an interview to get to know more about the culture and the Jonathan, let's uh, let's go to, to you and then Jerry, if you got any tips after that, love to hear them. That's a great question. Yeah. So the question is basically, who do you, what do you ask in an interview to get more about the culture? I think what's going to be very important is at the end of your interview, the questions that you ask can be, I think one of the best questions is what's their story of how they got to where they are today. 
and what do they best like about their role? And also like what they like in that, in that question, the reason being is because you'll be able to see, for example, like what their journey was to get to where they are today, where their sort of values align with the companies. And that'll allow you to make a decision whether or not that company is the right fit for you in terms of your values and that company's values. Another thing as well is this also brings in the due diligence of you having to interview people or informational interviews with people at that company before you even have your interview. So what I used to do all the time, especially with the different companies that I was trying to work for, I would have informational interviews with people who worked at the companies already. So when I had the interview, I already knew how the culture was in terms of their own perspectives. And I used to put it as my own too as well, because I was able to see exactly what they did and then apply it to my own life and say to myself, do I want to do this? So I think those are going to be very important, especially with learning more about the culture. Because of course you can read online about it, but the thing is learning from an actual employee is going to be even better. Yeah. And I to build on top of that, if you want to even use something a little bit more non-traditional is talk to ex-employees. They're going to give you the most raw and most real feedback just because they don't, they're not incentivized to speak good about the company anymore. So as you're sort of going through your job search, make sure you absolutely what John said, ask those questions during the interview, reach out and network with current employees, but just don't forget the old, the, the old employees as well. So kind of like, let's say we're applying for, for a data scientist role, then we go to the, the company's LinkedIn and maybe we can see past employees. I think that's something you see on LinkedIn, but just look for data scientists that was in the same role and just kind of just pick their brain. Like, do, like what's kind of like the right way to go about that? Should be like, why'd you leave your job at this place? Should I ask them how much money were you making? Like, what, what do I ask them? What do I don't ask them? Yeah, I, I think each conversation is different, but it really just comes down to whether you, what, what, what the biggest and most important thing is. I think the way not to approach this is to say, hey, person, I have a list of 26 questions I'd love to ask you before I make a decision on this role. 26 is a lot. I recommend just going in with one thing and say, hey, listen, I really want to learn a little bit more about the team culture as I'm about to apply. Would love to, would love to pick your brain for five minutes. And the thing I always love to sort of input during my networking calls is just be like, listen, I'm happy to, you know, get you virtual coffee to thank you for your time just to reciprocate and sort of offer offer that piece uh, or even perhaps to say listen i'm happy to donate to a nonprofit in your name right it sort of is that a way for you to show that hey i really value your time and this i'm willing to show you with my actions that i respect it and also just just being very candid about your questions and saying hey listen like tell me a little bit more about the the work-life balance at this place how many hours did you work did you feel like you could take vacation whenever you wanted and so on and so forth? I think eventually you sort of begin to find that there are certain common themes once you do enough of these calls, but definitely being more straightforward than not is, uh, is a best practice. So let's uh, continue on with, with some other questions about the interview process. I think this is one that I know always scared the hell out of me because I didn't know what the hell people were asking. Is there a right or wrong way to answer the tell me about yourself question? Uh, Jonathan, what do you think? I think that uh, one thing that we'd love to teach is tell me about yourself should literally be about yourself, right? It's in, it's in the name, but also like your own background, like your own story. I think a lot of people talk about experience, which is great. You should. Your past current experience is wonderful, which you want to do in the future, but also talk about where you come from, right? Like maybe you come from a first-gen background. Maybe you come from uh, a background where you're a you low-income household. Talk a little bit about that because you never know if the other person on the other side also comes from that same background where you're able to build that rapport with that individual. So I would add those layers to it. And then also what you like to do outside of work. 
I think that's really important because you might have something that's similar to the other person that they like to do outside of it as well. And Gary, how should we answer the, the what's your biggest weakness question? Should we actually just say weakness or what, what's your tips there? Yeah, the typical structure for this that we have seen is share an actual weakness. Don't try to code it with a, hey, this is my, I'm, I'm too hardworking. I'm too perfect, right? Share an actual weakness. But the most important thing that they care about is not, you know, what your weakness is, but what you're doing about it. Are you being proactive in, let's say your, your analytical skills could be used a little bit of work. Are you taking courses? Are you taking on a side project at work? Are you doing anything outside of your core duty to make sure you go ahead, or even it could be within your core line of work to make sure you go ahead and improve that area of yourself where you feel like you need more development. So just being very straightforward and being like, this is what my sort of weakness is, just the feedback I've heard it in. But most importantly, this is what I'm doing about it. So just to kind of put some context there to, to data science scientists. So let's say you're a data scientist, machine learning engineer, you're working in like natural language processing and you get asked that question, what's your biggest weakness in an interview? And you know that, okay, well, you know what, these transformer language models, I know nothing about them. That you, you say that that's, you know, transformer language models, those are my biggest weakness, but here's what I'm doing about it. I've picked up this book, this course, and I'm working on this little project to, to build my skills up. So that's kind of the, the recipe for that. Exactly. I'm, I'm doing a Kaggle project with, you know, a Kaggle competition with a number of my colleagues, whatever it is. Awesome. So thanks so much for, for sharing all these wonderful tips. Uh, I want to, you know, kind of maybe get a little bit, a little bit personal here with personal questions. And let's first talk about being, being an influencer, LinkedIn influencer, kind of like the, the perils of being a LinkedIn influencers. What responsibility do you think it is? I mean, I don't know if I counted, I've only got like 43,000 followers, whatever I'm influencer or not, but uh, I feel like I have some responsibility towards uh, people consuming my content. What, what are your, what are your views on that? What responsibility do we, do we have towards, towards those who are, following us not to sound grandiose jonathan go for it yeah i mean if you have a huge following you just remember that you are you are a voice for whatever niche you're in and i think it's very important to you know listen to your community regarding the different ideas that they have or questions that they have because what you can do is you can build a lot of content based on what your community wants uh, i think a lot of things that uh, sometimes people will do is be selfish and look out for their only their own intentions when in fact looking out for the company, the community that's already supported you since day one, since you've grown from zero to let's just say 50,000 is going to be very important. So always remember to keep providing value to the world and the world will always provide value back to you. That's what we try to do, especially on our different platforms as LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram, all those different ones, just to help more people land jobs, for example. Anything to add there? No. Yeah. I think yeah. just, just know that this title of influencer, I think has a lot of varying connotations to it, but at the end of the day, what it comes down to is providing value to someone, entertainment, knowledge, you know, laughter, what have you. So just making sure you don't lose sight of why people are follow you is probably the most important thing that I, I've sort of learned. And that sort of goes ties into sort of what, what John was saying too. Just make sure that you sort of are intentional about what you do, what you post, what you talk about, how you structure the way that you talk to people, how you engage with them. You know, I think that's prime, one of the one of the hardest, hardest things, especially when things might change. But really, I think that that's probably one of the key principles that we've learned. And have you guys ever gone to like any types of bouts of kind of creator burnout, you know, like what was that like? What, what, how did you overcome it? You know, what were some early warning signs that, that you're starting to get burnt out? Maybe we'll start with uh, Jerry and, and then John. 
Yeah, I think so. It's funny because John and I, we, we, we churn out content. We, John told me about this strategy actually, where it was like Gary V recommends you create like a hundred pieces of content or like 10 pieces of content every day or something. And though at a first, at a, at sort of a, a first glance, that seems like it's a lot, but content could be Instagram stories, commenting, replying to your DMs and so on and so forth. So for us, we post every day on every platform at least once. We try to make sure we engage with the community as much as we possibly can. And I think that's one of the one of the things that we, we try to do. So definitely burnout is very, very possible. It's very prevalent. I think that the biggest thing I sort of fall back to whenever I sort of have these uh, burnouts is just to make sure you sort of have a support system. Like, for example, like I, me- I mentioned to John uh, the other day that like, hey, listen, like I don't feel like really making content or I'm not inspired or whatever, you know, and John will just sort of give me a list of his ideas or his thoughts of, of what content I, sh- I could create. And I think it's important to have people who understand sort of what you're thinking about and going through is extremely important because when you don't, that's where I feel like you can get burnt out extremely, extremely quickly without you have even having to realize it. Yeah, because I mean, trying to create content, man, it's like just screaming into a digital abyss, trying to you know convince the world, literally the world that, that you exist and are worth listening to. So uh, Jonathan, how are you handling that? Do you ever get those bouts of creator burnout? Do you ever get those bouts of, oh man, this content should perform better, but yeah. like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. It's funny that Jerry mentioned that because literally right when Jerry mentioned that and he was able to get back on content, he had about three videos that hit a million, I'm pretty sure on TikTok. So check his TikTok out. So that burnout does happen all the time, especially with creators, but always remember that the content you create, sometimes the ideas, like I think something that a lot of creators do is they think of their own content, which is wonderful. But the thing is, think about it. What we, what do we talk about? Heartbeat, literally your community. Get the questions from the community. Get the content from the community. If they ask you a question, make it into a piece of content. Literally what I try to do all the time. I, I used to think about my content all the time, but now I just look at my community. And I'm like, hey, what questions y'all got? literally make content based on those questions. So always remember that your community is of course there uh, for you, but you can also utilize that community to listen to and create answers to those questions, which can turn into content. Valuable advice. Thank you so much, guys. So a couple, you know, a couple questions here, then we can start to begin to wrap it up. Just real quick, what's the right way to ask for a mentor? How do we identify who we want as a mentor? Great question, Arpreet. I think mentorship comes organically. I've never had a mentor. I don't know if you've ever had a mentor where you said, hey, be my mentor. Yeah, never. <laughs> if anybody ever takes time, 30 minutes, an hour, a year to, to spend with you and to help you, that means they're mentoring you. Mentorship is also a two-way street. Always remember, a mentor can be, of course, helping you, but what can you do for your mentor? Always think about that. I have about six mentors. They're all in corporate. I need more mentors if we're founders. So if any of you mentors are founders, I mean, all of them are mostly in corporate, but they're the ones who helped me kind of break into corporate and learn more about the corporate corporate world. And in turn, like now I always, for example, one thing I always give to them is like, Hey, you want to give back and speak at this workshop? Hey, you want to speak at this event? And they're always willing to help out and kind of grow their brands with us. So uh, I think mentorship happens organically just to tie it up. Yeah. And a quick shout out, because I think, John, you also helped get Pooja, the person who connected us, featured on a news article, right? That's right. Pooja got featured on uh, Times of India, I believe. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Jerry, anything to add there about uh, mentors? Like, you know, how do you identify? How do you go about finding, okay, this person might be a good candidate uh, or, you know, that that, that vetting process or what have you? 
yeah really i think john hit the nail on the head like i don't know if there's really much i would add mm-hmm. apart from just saying like just identify the areas of your life that are important to you and make sure you have a mentor there mm-hmm. for example for me career growth is still something i'm very passionate about even for myself as a co-founder here what is what is growing as a as a leader as an entrepreneur look like i have a mentor there i have someone who's more of like a sort of a life coach to me to help me understand like what are things broader than just work and 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 things that we do to help other people what are some of the things i should be working focused upon i have a mentor for personal finance right so all those all these areas that are important to me I make sure I have a mentor for. So similar for everyone who's out there looking for a mentor, just make sure you sort of have people in your life that you could reach out to for these areas that are important to you. And if you don't, find someone who fits the criteria that you're looking for and just reach out and say, hey, I'd love to scratch your, it's your brain a little bit about how I can grow in this area. And the reason why I feel like most people would be down to talk to you is because the number one thing that people love to talk about themselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So let's go ahead and uh, wrap it up and then go into just a real quick random round. My last formal question is, it is 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? Let's go to uh, Jonathan and then we will go to Jerry. Yeah, the, the question was about personal things. Or... No, just 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? Oh, oh 100 years in the future. Yeah. Uh, that's a very interesting question. So what I want to be remembered for is just making an impact on the world. I think it's going to be very important. And I think we've been able to make a, a good impact, especially with the work that we've done. But of course, you want to scale that to even more individuals and more people around the world, right? I, I think that if we're able to continuously do that to millions, I mean, we've been doing it to millions of people now, but let's just try to get billions. I think that would be incredible. So just inspiring more underdogs or people who come from underrepresented backgrounds or non-traditional backgrounds to help them get into their careers and help them realize like, hey, we can do it as long as we put the work in, but also utilize the strategies that we love to teach all the time. So I think that's one thing to be remembered by. Similarly, I think for me, I think I would love to just be remembered by by people just having made even just what their job search 1% easier. I think that's just the most important thing for me is that like, if there's something that I shared or that I, my work has done and has enabled you to feel even just 1% more confident, 1% more knowledgeable, I feel like my job has been done. So for me, it's more so about just making sure I hold that principle true more than the quantity of people I reach out to or anything. And just making sure I hold myself to that, no matter what happens in my life, I think is just something I really um, am passionate about. Go for it, man. Thank you guys so much. Let's jump into a real quick random round. Quickly, what do you have on repeat? What song do you have on repeat? Let's go to uh, Jerry, then John. Anything by Khalid. I love Khalid songs. Khalid is just the best. Jonathan? Yeah. Apparently my number one song in 2021 was Ross Putin, which is a TikTok song, which I don't know how the heck it's my number one song, but I guess I'll go with that one. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead and uh, do what I like to call the random question generator. What talent would you like to show off in a talent show? Let's go to Jonathan. Oh, I think he's lagging here. Oh. Uh, yeah 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 sorry it looks like my internet was unstable what talent would you like to show off in a talent show oh dang talent talent show spinning basketball on my finger easy nice nice jerry cool. shoot i'm triple jointed on all my fingers 
Ah, that's interesting. That, that's interesting. What fictional place would you most like to go, Jerry? I might get a lot of hate for this, but I haven't read or seen any of the Harry Potter movies, or maybe I've seen one when I was a kid, but I would love to go to a Harry Potter world. <laughs> nice. Uh, Hogwarts, Hogwarts. Hogwarts. There we yeah. go. <laughs> all right. Jonathan, if you lost all of your possessions, but one, what would you want it to be? I would say, ooh, it's a tough one. Probably my lap, my, my iPhone, of course. Yeah. Keep my phones literally where I make all my TikToks and videos. <laughs> need the iCloud, man. Need iCloud. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedules to come onto the show. How can people connect with you? Where can they find you? Please yeah. connect with us on LinkedIn, Jonathan Javier, and then Jerry Lee. Uh, TikTok, Juan Solting slash Jerry H. Lee. And then Instagram, Jonathan Words of Wisdom and Jerry H. Lee there. Please connect with us. Say so you're from the podcast and we're looking forward to connecting soon. And uh, if you're interested in any one-on-one services, do let us know. OneSolveThing.com. we got a lot of good stuff going on. We'll be sure to include all of those links right there in the show notes. My friends, thank you so much for coming on. And everybody watching, remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Here's everyone. Bye.